0: ever worked hard for something you just knew was going to pay off only to be disappointed that that when that long awaited day finally comes maybe you pined for something some milestone or even someone maybe it was a promotion a relationship or even a big event like a vacation or sporting event you've put time and money and effort into it only to be left feeling like you strove so hard for something that maybe wasn't really worth having Hi, this is Liz Shears, joined by my Belcro co-hosts Rachel Briers and Mary Scott Hunter. And today, I'd like to—I'd like us to talk about the things that we often strive for that aren't really all that worth having. I know for me, this often comes in the form of buyer's remorse. You know, we know—we all know that feeling, don't we? Maybe it's something mm-hmm. you had your eye on for a long time, only to buy it and be disappointed that you spend all that money on something you're really not going to use or enjoy that much. Buyer's remorse specifically is a type of cognitive dissonance. And you know how we love to talk about psychology and neuroscience on this show. So I want to jump right in with this one. And I found this helpful example uh, about cognitive dissonance um, on a website about home buying that we'll link in the show notes. You know, home, buying a home is a huge goal for many of us. And for most of us, it's also the biggest individual purchase we'll ever make. And quote, as humans, sometimes we want things that are in direct opposition to each other. For example, we want to buy a house, and we also want to travel and eat out and have a nice lifestyle. The moment we commit to one path, buying a house, we worry that the other choice might have made us happier. According to The Hustle, some surveys have shown that as many as 7 out of 10 people who buy a car and 44% of all new homeowners experience some form of buyer's remorse, but even the smaller items like clothing, electronics, and kitchenware, they can just as easily haunt us. The highest incidence of smaller items that garner the reaction of, of buyer's remorse, clothes, shoes, and apparels at over 60%, which Ooh, really
1: amen. is gracious.
0: <laughs> How many of us have closets full of stuff with a tag still on them? Uh, Raises hands.
1: <laughs> guilty as charged. Yeah. So
0: one of the ways that I read that said to a, uh, the best way to combat buyer's remorse in particular was to buy experiences and not things Do either of you have an example of when that plan maybe backfired.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. So um, in general, I'm a big fan of buying experiences and making memories. And because because if you think about it, it's the same reason why your parents might or somebody might have told you somewhere along the way education is the only thing you can never take away because it's knowledge. It, it exists in your head. It's not anything anyone can take away. I mean, people can do anything. You can, you can lose a lot, but you, you don't generally lose your knowledge. You don't lose your memories. You don't lose your you know, those things that, that really make you you. But I will say that when my children were little – I, I was still trying to do too much. I was still trying to, you know, John and I had a very active lifestyle pre-children. I've, I've spoken on the show about, you know, just struggling with getting married, but not that I, I mean, I wanted to be married. I love my husband, but just kind of struggling with the whole, you know, giving up something to get something else. And then when we, when we had children, we were still trying to travel and do things like we did before and when we just had one our oldest Nathan we could throw him in the backpack and you know we were living in Europe we were in the military and we would throw him in the backpack and go places and it really wasn't that hard with just him and i also think there was like some philosophy changes and some differences in you know in european culture that i mean just kind of helped with things but when we got back to the States and we started having more children, um, there was a point where I guess I just didn't see how hard and what a big bag drag things are. When you have when you have a toddler and you have a baby and at one point I was you know, I was we had toddler Nathan, we had baby Ann Claire and I was pregnant with Caleb. They're only fourteen months apart and we decided to go to the Dominican Republic. And it was an expensive Bad trip. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel's laughing right now. She's almost falling out of her chair laughing right now.
2: <laughs> I can picture the whole thing.
1: Oh, the diapers, the the the, the pack and play, the toys, the, I, I, it was terrible. It was a terrible trip. I couldn't, I couldn't have anything to drink because I was pregnant. I was, it was hot. It was sticky. There was sand. I was flipping miserable. And I had these two <laughs> little kids and on the way home, <laughs> I'm, I just made the decision we are not traveling like that again until everybody can drag their bags. And we did not until 2014. So that was one where I, we tried to, you know, make this great memory, you know, before the third kid came and, you know, buy this experience for our family, but it was horrible. So yes, I had definite remorse about uh, that. And we, know and it was something we worked hard for and we planned for and we we really strove to make happen and then it just wasn't worth it you know
2: so I can just picture all of that we we (laughs) went through the same same things but I guess I've had to kind of think think about and realize that often the anticipation of the big thing is truly more enjoyable than the actual thing we experienced that this year. Pepper and I had a had a trip that we had actually won because we sat through one of those awful timeshare presentations <laughs> to get the to get the free trip and it was going to expire this year. And so we took an extended weekend trip and the options of where we could use this free, you know, quote free trip were very very limited. And we had a handful of options and the combination of what was available, what looked the nicest was Las Vegas. Well, Pepper and I are not gamblers. There's nothing appealing to me about slot machines and games of chance and all that. So we thought, let's go there and skip all that stuff and take the opportunity to drive out into the desert, see the Grand Canyon, and then let's go to Vegas one night or two nights and have dinner and walk around and see what this is all about. We'd both never been there. Well, I know some people love Vegas, but number one, it was mercilessly hot when we were there. Mm -hmm. Yes, the architecture is stunning. It is something to see. But there's a lot of also just grime and and sadness and unsavory people doing unsavory things. And I tell you, after an hour or more of walking up and down with all these people and trying to find a place open during, you know, COVID restrictions just to sit down and relax, I was just like like get me out of here. I am glad I saw it so I can say I've been there. But I am good now, and I am so glad that trip was free. I mean, we had to pay for flights and the rental car and food, but the room was free because I would have felt a buyer's remorse. And I will say the desert was well worth it. We did thoroughly enjoy driving into Arizona. But Pepper and I have reflected many times after big trips or expensive dinners or whatever that, you know, some of the happiest times we have ever had were more than 16 years ago living in a one-bedroom apartment without two pennies to rub together just enough to get a Friday night pizza and watch Alias or Lost together.
0: I love it. Remind me not to go to Las Vegas and when was it like August, September, or something like that? Yes. For the record, I love Vegas. Ah. I've never been I've never been so there's this thing called Paris syndrome which is a form of culture shock and disappointment that some people are said to uh, experience when they visit Paris France for the first time and find that despite its glamorous and gleaming depictions on in movies and on Instagram it It's actually kind of a grimy and welcoming and sometimes decidedly unromantic city. I think I had a mild form of it on my first trip there. Because you have these huge high expectations of this gorgeous, romantic place. And there there are some aspects of it that are really cool. I will never be unimpressed by the Eiffel Tower. It is much bigger than I thought it would be. But there are so many other things about the city that I was just like, "Eh, I'd rather be almost... Anywhere else in the world <laughs> where I am right now.
1: You know, I think that is probably true of any place you go. And whether it's Vegas or Paris or the capital of our country or I mean there's there's just you're gonna see they're real places. They're not it's not a it's not a fancy picture in a book that's perfectly lit. It's it's not a it's not a, a memory that's twenty years old where all the rough edges have been blurred out. I mean, it's not a long distance relationship where the person can be perfect because they're, you don't have to, you know, wake up in the morning and see them with, you know, morning breath, you know, I mean, there's, they're, they're real places. They're real things. There's, there's drunks. There's there's you know there's problems with your hotel room. There's there's, there's people there's, trying to sell there's you. There's people. Yeah, euro
0: little <laughs> Eiffel Tower keychains <laughs> everywhere. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I think that I, I I'd never heard of Paris syndrome, but it does make perfect sense because in our world where everything's on social media and everybody puts their super I don't know filtered pictures up where everything looks perfect and everybody's smiling and I mean the truth is no no places like that no places like that
0: so taking just a little bit of a step back do either of you have an example of a time like I described in the intro where there was something that you really wanted a thing maybe a relationship or a promotion or something like that but then once you got it suddenly the shine
1: was gone oh yeah I mean who really who hasn't been there who hasn't pined for the new car or Pined for the, you know, the the dress or the the, the home edition. For me, a lot of that is home improvement. You know, I think a lot. Of, I I really we really enjoy working on our house. And you know, I'll I always have a list going. I have a massive list on my phone of things that um that I want to do someday. You know, I have things that I want to do, in, you know, this year or next year, and you know, things that are kind of someday things. But I always find that we do these projects and I, I'm I'm happy for a little while, but then I'm like, okay, next, you know, I'm like, it's, and I, I don't know if that's the right way to think about it. I think I may be needing to tune my thinking about that because I've noticed that that, that can get to be a real drag for my poor husband, who's really the one that winds up, you know, you know, digging the fence post hole or, <laughs> you know, or repainting the, you know, the half bath or, you know, I mean, we do things together, um, do these projects together, but it really, he's always such a willing partner. But I, I do think that I let that list lead a little too much and, you know, it's, it's good to put a little rest in between those projects and enjoy the project. And I feel like sometimes I don't, I don't do that enough.
2: You know, I'll share something that we that happened this year with our children that was kind of illuminating along the lines of what you opened up with Liz. That because you you know you see that you see your kids go through these moments where they realize, ooh, I yearned and yearned and then I got it and I wasn't happy. But we went to Universal Studios and they have Harry Potter World there, and you can buy all of the Wizard- Wizarding World accoutrements, and of course it's very magical while you're there. And you know, all five of our kids wanted to pick out wands at the wand shop. Well, those are not cheap. And we'd already told them, look, we are not buying anything at these parks. The parks and the food and all of that are expensive enough. If you want something, you have to buy it yourself. So no one had enough money themselves for a wand, but you know, that's what they really wanted and they yearned and yearned for these wands. They just had to have them. So we did recognize, okay, this is an opportunity to teach them a lesson about credit, knowing full well that they were likely going to have some serious buyer's remorse when they got home. And they were like, I have this stick now, (laughs) Uh, this plastic stick. So we did give them the opportunity to to buy the wands, you know, on credit from us, but they were going to have to pay it off with their chore money for however long it took. And everyone took us up on that offer. Well, sure enough, once we got home, don't you know, those wands got tossed in the corner. They have not pulled them out. The glow wore off but the debt remained. And so my youngest son, especially he's six years old, cried and cried every time we paid him his chore money. And we did, we put that money in his hand. And then we were like, now you got to pay it back. <laughs> Sounds really terrible, I'm sure. But you know, you got to pay, you got to pay off your debt. And I've talked to him all throughout that, that, you know, this is what it's like to buy things on credit cards, the glow often wears off, you know, long before you've paid off the debt. So I think they've learned a lot of great lessons, but it's been so hard for them. And actually really, really hard for me not to just give in and be like, oh gosh, I'll just pay this for you. <laughs> but I think the memory will, you know, will make an impression.
1: Absolutely. That's a great learning experience. What That's a, great a great lesson. Yeah. 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 I'm gonna file that one away.
0: So I'm a pretty future oriented Enneagram three and I have a significant the grass is probably greener on the other side mentality sometimes, which kind of to what you said, Mary Scott, is something I don't feel great about and probably really need to work on. I mean, there, I, I am somebody who struggles if I don't have something in the future to set my sights on some goal that I'm working Mm -hmm. toward, whether that's buying a thing or, or, or an experience or the next step in my career or whatever it is. And maybe something I need to work on in light of what we're about to talk about is how I can kind of level set that grass is greener mentality. Mm -hmm. So, what actually makes us happy? You know, we mentioned investing in experiences instead of stuff to combat, to combat buyer's remorse. But what about having a happy baseline? According to research by Sonia Lubomirsky, who wrote The How of Happiness, there is actually an equation to determine happiness.
1: It'll help that very bell curvy. I love it.
0: And <laughs> <In> that <laughs> equation is H equals S plus C plus V. So, H is happiness. H is happiness. That makes sense. S is what she calls the set point, and it is weighted at about 50%. And she argues that it's actually determined by your genetics. So, she's saying that 50% of your happiness with life is determined by who you are as a person, by your genetics. Hmm. Circumstances is C, and they're external. Think things like money and possessions. They only make up 10% of what goes into your happiness. So what is that other 40%? V stands for voluntary activities, specifically thoughts and actions. And that is 40%. And that is completely in your control. So those are thoughts like gratitude, self-esteem or self-love, forgiveness and grace, and patience and fulfilling goals. And then she mentions actions like exercise or hobbies or even giving generously. So, we'll dive more into this in a minute. But first, I want to ask you, what is what is y'all's reaction to knowing that a full 40% of our happiness, according to this research, is predicated on things that we we can control and that 50% is apparently outside of our control.
1: I don't necessarily like the idea that 50% of our 50% is set by you know, something we can't control. I, I really would like to think of, of happiness as something more, even more that's in our control. It's, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that she thinks it's as much as 40%, you know, and I haven't read her research and I'm certain it's, you know, she's, she's done her work, but I like to think that it's even more inside your control than, than that. Uh, it may not feel that way. It may not seem that way. But I, I do think of of it as as more your personal choices or she calls it voluntary activities.
2: I think if you have a genetic disposition toward a baseline that is already kind of tilting toward a certain degree of of happiness. And then if you struggle with thoughts, too, you're just exacerbating your baseline and putting yourself really behind the curve. And I think it's the hidden struggles for joy and peace and happiness that we just don't know about each other. I mean, you can't look at someone's life and say, oh, you have this, you should you should be so happy or, oh, you have that. You know, what, what in the world do you have to be sad about? Because we just don't know what inner battles people are facing. And for those with a genetic disposition to be very naturally happy, that is awesome. You know, that in itself is a huge gift. My, I mean, my dad is that way. He genuinely does not have to try, y'all. he It's just who he is, and he will tell you that. So we can admire those folks, but they have an inner gift, and maybe they don't have to struggle like some do. So I say that to encourage others like I encourage myself. I think we have to look at the percentages you gave us, Liz, and with great grace for ourselves say, okay, I'm not going to spin my wheels after empty things that only make up 10% of happiness, like money and all that. And I'm going to accept my genetic state and show mercy to myself because of it. And if I'm really struggling in the 40% voluntary activities area, I'm going to humble myself and ask for help.
1: I think that if we're thinking about this in terms of striving for something that may not be worth having, striving is an important word in there. And striving to me implies choices it implies what she calls voluntary activities and i think that there are things that happen to you you know the circumstances of your birth your genetics your your circumstances of life of work there are things that happen to you that truly are outside of your control and i suppose that would all kind of fall into that that probably that that 50% of things but i really do think that sometimes And not all the time. And I, and I, I am not shaming anyone here. I'm, but I am, I, but I just, I wish sometimes that we would put a little more emphasis on voluntary activities and really, really understanding that, yes, there are, there are circumstances and things that are, that are going to get you down and that do get you down and illnesses and the list goes on and on. But making choices for yourself and for your loved ones that can, that are positive, you know, that, that's within most everyone's capacity. That is within most everyone's capacity. And it's important that you do that. It's really important that you do that. Otherwise you're, and and I guess there's also a kind of a, I've made a note here that it's a perspective and a prioritization, striving for things that aren't worth having. Are worth having, if you're in that volunteer, if you're trying to function in that voluntary 40% or 50% or however much you think of it is, however much you think is really within your control, you know, that that's a, that's a finite amount of resources, time, energy. If you're striving for things that aren't worth happening, having in that little bit of bucket that you have, you know, what you're doing is crowding out things that are worth having and are worth doing and are worth working for and we only have so much time in this world we only have so much energy we only have so much space we only have so many people we can affect and touch so to me this research really speaks to how important it is that of that bucket that we have control over we're making the very best decisions and we're not striving for things that aren't worth having for the next home improvement project that can really wait the next trip that may or may not be even worth doing you know the next bigger car bigger house I mean those are those things if proud out your opportunities to really make the choices that are really meaningful for happiness and fulfillment
0: gosh so much wisdom from both of y'all um in that answer and I thank you so much for each of your vulnerability and um openness in answering that question I know for me I it was both frustrating and liberating to see those percentages spill down. She has some really good and compelling research behind how she came to each of those, um, each of those conclusions on that. I will say, you know, I really struggled against that 50% for the genetics until I thought of it in terms of, of um, how I feel in the morning when I wake up at six o'clock in the morning versus how my husband feels in the morning when he wakes up at six o'clock. He's just <laughs> wired that way. He is wired <laughs> to wired. wake up at 5 45 ready to take on the day. He's like a puppy. He's happy. He's ready to go full energy where I'm just like leave me alone. <laughs> Has nothing to do with <laughs> caffeine or coffee. She's like leave me alone until I'm awake and I have my thoughts together and then I can be a real human being. <laughs> and, and you're we just have we just have different, we're wired different ways. We and some of that is genetics and some of that's you know, nature versus nurture. But learning to be self-aware of those differences and really embracing you know the tools that you're given to to try to get better outcomes. And then on the on the flip side of that seeing that only 10% of what makes us happy is wrapped up in our circumstances. And that's, like I said, money, possessions, stuff, what's going on in the world. That's, that's kind of freeing too, because Mm -hmm. that, that really gives you the opportunity to say, Hey, I I don't have to be tied to these things or these expectations anymore. I can take concrete actions that will increase my baseline of happiness
1: I really feel strongly that it's all about your choices because I, I look at, you know, people's lives vary obviously widely in luxuries and, you know, stuff and opportunities and and that sort of thing. But I think about how you can wind up, you can find yourself envying people's lives who have far less than you. Um, And I'm not talking about, (laughs) but I, Rachel, take for example, what you said earlier, you said there was a time in your life when you didn't have two nickels to rub together and you were, you know, scrounging to order a pizza on Friday night and what, and you have such great memories of that. Well, you made choices at that time to live a good life. You made choices and there would be people that would have so much more money in the bank, but they would envy what you had. They would envy you your happiness. So I think to me, that's where that voluntary activities, 40% is your voluntary activities. To me, it's it's not about the stuff. It's not about the size of your house. It's not about the newness of your car. It's about the choices that you make. And you can have an enviable, happy life, much happier than some people that have much more.
2: You know, and thinking about if you make a bad choice, then letting that influence your future choice. I mean, I, I'll just bring up quickly that you know how when you when you buy your first house, you just don't know how the finances are gonna shake out. You know what your mortgage will be, but you ha- you don't know all the costs. And so it's kinda hard to predict. Well, you know, we bought a, a very nice house on the water in a gated community. It was sort of the she she part of town. And I at that time just I don't know, I was drawn to that. And we got into it. And our kids were also in private school. And I realized a couple months in, I was like, well, hope I like this house and this school. <laughs> you know, and it was like, Oh, I've got this thing. But now now we're sort of stressed in the, in the other area. And so when we moved to Huntsville, you know, there was sort of that temptation again to be like, well, what's the nice part of town, but we like actively had to be like, wait a minute, remember, and I think it gets to this 10% percentage that that's not what made us happy and just making a different choice. Once you, once you realize that I think is important.
0: So there's, there's also this concept called the hedonic treadmill or sometimes it's known as the hedonic adaptation, which is kind of related to Dr. Lubomirsky's research. And it is quote the observed tendency of humans to quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness, despite major positive or negative events or life changes according to this theory as a person makes more money expectations and desires rise in tandem which results in no permanent gain in happiness and some examples they gave to demonstrate this were when somebody wins the lottery their their happiness goes way up but it's temporary and they'll go it'll it'll even back out it'll go back down to that baseline or say somebody is injured in a car wreck and and they are now paralyzed for life and you know, they're going to really really struggle for a while and then Their happiness goes, they report that their happiness goes back about to where it was before the accident. So with that kind of that treadmill in mind, do either of you have any ideas on how to permanently increase that baseline by pursuing things that actually will increase our happiness in the short and long term?
1: I think that the research is absolutely correct because who hasn't been in the situation where you've looked at the budget and you're getting some extra money and from a job or from some side hustles and you think I'm going to be so much happier and then that disposable income goes somewhere and the truth is you're not any happier than you were before you had the disposable income. I mean, that's, that's real. That's happened to everyone. Let me say this though, just break, break. We are not talking about situations where that the situation is abject and there's there's poverty and there's there's real need that's a totally different scenario i'm talking about the everyday middle income sort of situation where you think you're going to love having all this disposable income or having a little extra and the truth is you're never any happier so how do you really get happier to me it's meaningful things it's things that build your soul that feed your soul your faith faith formation your reading um your, you know, experiences, they're not necessarily expensive experiences, but commitments to walking or um, spending time with loved ones or going to visit a graveside or, you know, those real experiences that when you come away, you just, your soul feels richer. That's to me what ups your baseline.
2: Mm, That is such wisdom. You know, I think we talk a lot about awareness and, I continue to feel that that is such a key, like you said, Liz, to this equation, just knowing, just knowing that money, possessions, all of that will likely only account for 10% of our happiness. That's major information to remember, to teach our children who are bombarded with materialism, to model to them you know, what it is to be truly satisfied with what you have. Because you're right, Mary Scott, You know, once you've taken care of your needs and a modest degree of your wants, you're not going to be that much happier with more. You know, I'm happiest when my children are doing well, when I can be there for them, be present, loving, caring, sitting with them, unrushed, listening to their little worries, tucking them in, when Pepper and I can just sit on our back porch in peaceful states of mind and listen to music and just be with each other. And that does not cost a dime.
1: I think 2021 is to take yourself off the hedonic treadmill gear. If there's anything that 2020 taught us, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it.
0: I know my my word. I've already picked out my word for 2021, and it is just peace. Because y'all, I need it, Mm. and I think that is the thing that will increase my happiness baseline so much as if I I strive for and look for and work for inner peace. That is worth having. No freaking kidding, because you know, lifestyle inflation is a real thing. Is a real (laughs) thing. I ain't got real problems but I don't have peace right now either. And that's what I want to work for. I do have one actionable tip that has really helped me in getting off of that wanting more stuff treadmill. And this might seem a little bit silly, but unsubscribe from marketing emails from places where you like to spend money. I used to spend an obscene amount of money on clothes from J crew but it's only because I learned that they were sending me emails every day talking about this great new sale. And that just lights up stuff in my brain of saying, oh, I, I can't miss out on this great sale. Look at this cute piece of, of clothing that will just make me look so cute. And oh, it's 30% off. Well, you know what? It was also 30% off last week, too. So it, <laughs> well, as soon as I unsubscribed from those marketing emails, I stopped spending that money and I, and I got off that treadmill. So that's one piece of actionable advice that's that's worked for me. Thank you all so much for this wonderful, enlightening conversation. I really, really treasure our our time together and treasure each of you. Uh, Curvy's our listeners. Of course, we can't close the show without thanking our our sponsor, Higher Echelon. Higher Echelon is based in Huntsville, Alabama, but they really operate all over the country, especially in today's very online digital day and age. They they have services ranging from training to leadership training and, and helping you walk through your own digital transformation. Maybe your organization is looking to implement Salesforce or some other kind of customer relationship management system. They are the organization to help you. You can find Higher Echelon on higherechelon.com or on Facebook and LinkedIn you can also find bell curve on facebook and instagram at bell curve pod check out all of our uh, we've got over a year and a half of episodes at this point this is episode i think 62 um so you can you can find some of our back episodes on bell curve podcast.com thank you so much welcome to 2021 ladies and gentlemen we made it